Thank you for tuning in to my podcast, Enforcing Purpose with Lisa Schwartz. For more information or to keep up on current events and products, please go to my website at www.lisa-schwartz.com. I'm also very excited because the theme that was spoken tonight is called Sought After. This was the very first conference that I ever wrote in 2009. It was the very first conference that I ever wrote. I have spoken this conference, I think, uh, I was trying to count today, definitely over a dozen times all over the United States. Um, On several college campuses, Marquette University, TCU, I have spoken at at Amarillo Boys Ranch um, in Amarillo. But I'm very excited about this message, and let me tell you why. This message was actually originally written for teen girls, and it was really to talk to them about their identity and who they are in Christ and really trying to break it down, like what is it about God that makes us different? What, what is it about us that makes us different to the world? What is it more than just this information that we have? You know, there are so many people that are raised in church, and we have all this information. Because, um, of course, I was giving this to teen girls who were, like, in, in youth, okay? So these were the girls that were, like, raised up in church, and, and they've been given all the information. But we know that when they're in teenage years, they, they are like, why do I believe what I believe, and, and what, what, how does this resonate in my life, and how does it resonate in my relationships, and, and why is this even important? And, um, and so I wrote this message actually originally for teenage girls, and what happened was, you know, when you do a, a, in a, in a conference for teen girls, it comes with a lot of women youth leaders, right? And so what happened was, and, and Kyler can attest to this, Kyler has lived with me since she was 16 or 17, so she has to go where I go. So uh, what would happen, though, is we'd be, like, ministering to these girls and giving this message, and we would notice, like, the women were, like, falling all over, just crying and weeping, and we ended up spending a lot of time ministering to the women, um, not just the teen girls. And so I thought, gosh, this message is, to me, what feels like very elementary, but elementary things, we, we learn in elementary school things that are foundational, And so sometimes elementary, it can feel simple, but sometimes elementary is good. It's necessary because it's foundational. And how many of you know that if we have cracks or if we have a faulty foundation, whatever you build on it is going to be crooked. It's going to lack integrity. That's why the scripture talks about Jesus being the plumb line. Right? He, is, he is the standard, the plumb line. The plumb line is what they would hang. They would hang this weight from a, from a string, and it's how they established the integrity of a building to make sure that if a storm were to come, that building would withstand the storm. And Jesus is our plumb line. He's the cornerstone. And I think sometimes we have to go back to that plumb line. We have to go back to that cornerstone and say, where's the crack in the foundation? And so there are going to be some things that you hear this weekend that you're like, okay, this is super elementary, but I want you to really allow the Holy Spirit to really pierce and penetrate and search for any crevices or any cracks, any faulty parts in the foundation of your understanding. And here's the challenge of when we get to our age and where we're at. We're older than y'all too. 
in case nobody has pointed that out to you, I think the two of you, maybe this lovely young lady back here, but the rest of us are older, and that's okay. We are lo- love that you are here. But when you get to where we're at, you know, sometimes we already think we already know everything, and, uh, and when we talk about the basics of who we are, we're like, oh, this is going to be, you know, just kind of a basic uh, message or what have you. But I, I really uh, believe very strongly that God is going to rattle some things this weekend. But the first step to that, you know, the Bible says that if we claim that we can see, we shall remain blind. And the first step to receiving is to step back and say, you know, there may be some things that I just don't know. It's possible that maybe everything that I've come to adapt my life around may not be the purest, strongest foundation. It's possible that even things that I've settled in and have determined that this is just who I am or the way I respond or the way I behave has actually been molded around something that's faulty and something that's not true and something that's not firm. It's very possible that there are many of us in this room that that is the case. Now, as I was sitting over there, uh, the Lord wanted me to kind of brought me to this passage, to this verse. I'm in 3 John. There's only one chapter. So chapter 1. Do you even say there's a chapter or do you just say 3 John 2? Okay. It says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. And as I was reading that, I was remembering and the Holy Spirit was reminding me of Acts chapter 3 with the man who sat by the temple gate and Peter and John went by them and they said, and he was asking for alms, right? He was asking for just enough to get him through the day. He was saying, this is what I've done my whole life, and God has provided just enough for me to get through the day. But Peter and John came and presented a paradigm shift to this man and said, what you're asking for, we want to give you more. There's more that we have to offer, and we don't want to just give you alms. We don't want you to just get through the day. We don't want you to just barely make it. We want you to rise up and come into a newness of life. And that's that picture of what I was just talking about. A lot of us have learned how to get the alms that we need to just get through the day. But the Bible says that he got up, that he stood up, and he went walking, leaping, and praising God. And I would like to propose to you that what we see there is a physical healing. A leaping is is a rejoicing. It's a soulish healing and a praising God, a healing in a spirit. So what we see is the entire body, the entire person being healed, body, soul, and spirit. But I find it interesting then later when he runs into the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they comment on him carrying his mat and him rejoicing and praising God. But they don't comment on the leaping of his soul. See, a lot of times we disregard the health of our soul. And the Bible says... That just, we will prosper as our soul prospers. And so this weekend, I want us to have kind of a little bit of a soul check. Okay, I'm going to take a pretty good guess that almost everybody in the room has come into salvation and knows Jesus as their personal Savior. And so I'm here to say, let's, let's check into our soul this weekend. And let's ask if our soul is prospering to the fullness potential that was given to us through salvation.
Because Jesus didn't just die that we would be saved, that our spirits would come to life, but he died that our soul would be leaping and rejoicing and our spirit would be praising God. That every part of who we are would be walking in the fullness of who he is. I once heard a story about a jewelry heist, a very famous story, a very famous jewelry heist years and years and years ago. I don't even remember now because remember I wrote this, story, this message so long ago, so many years ago, but it was, a, it was considered one of the most ingenious jewelry heists because what they would do is there was this jewelry store where they were known for making incredible brooches and, and, and earrings and, and rings and bracelets and necklaces and and then they would, they would make a, a counterfeit. They would make the fake brooch. And they would make so they would have the real one next to the fake one. So that when you came in, if you fell in love with the real one and you couldn't afford the real one, you could purchase the counterfeit. So knowing that there were all kinds of, you know, wires and trips and all kinds of stuff that if, if somebody were to come in and steal the actual real jewelry that an alarm would go off because it was set to all kinds of security what they did one night was these thieves came in and they switched all the price tags around and the next day they walked in the store and they bought all the counterfeit jewelry at the counterfeit price but what they got was the real thing and I would like to propose to you that life is kind of like that. That there are things that are taking our value, the real deal, and switching the price tags. There's counterfeit things out there that are trying to put a price on us that isn't the real value, isn't genuine to who we are and genuine to who, how we've been created. So there's these different opinions of what the world tells us there's different traditions that the world tells us we have to measure up to. And those are the price tags being slapped on us, saying this is what you need to do in order to be worth this amount. If you're the real thing, then this is the value of what you're doing. You follow? The Bible says that the whole world is under the control of the evil one, and he is leading the whole world astray. In the KJV, it says he is deceiving the world. The Greek word for deceiving there means causing us to roam away from safety and truth. Okay, I'm going to say that again. So when the enemy is deceiving us, he is leading the whole world astray. He is deceiving the world. It means he is causing us, pulling us, alluring us away from safety and truth. It also means in the Greek to seduce. Now, we're all grown women in this room. So I would like to propose to you that Satan is using this world. So he's using the world to seduce our minds. And that word seduce means to entice into sexual intercourse. I'm, I'm just calling it like I see it. So he wants to, and to, when we engage in sexual intercourse, we are becoming one with another thing. So what it's saying is the enemy is using, he is, he is alluring us and using the world to deceive us, to draw us into an intimacy with the world. Away from safety 
and away from truth. Now, the enemy is so interesting how he, all he has to do is, he doesn't have to draw a picture for us. All he has to do is kind of allure us away from truth. See, our mind will fill in gaps. The mind is an amazing, amazing organ. And it will fill in gaps, okay? So let me, let me tell you a riddle. There was a man, and he left home. And he ran, and he ran, and he ran, and he stopped. He looked around, and he turned to the left, and he began to run a little bit more. And then, he, and then he turned to the left again, and he began to run. And then he paused, he looked around, and then he took off running again until he ran into two masked men. Who was the man, and where was he? Anybody want to take a guess? He's a baseball player, and he's standing at home plate, and he's standing between the empire and the catcher. But see how easy it was for me to draw your mind? I drew your mind every, you guys were like, oh, he's, he's standing over Robert, he's about to get, he's, he's, he's in an alley. He's, you know, uh, and, and so, and, and that's how, so I did that for you so you can see how the enemy works, how he allures, our, he'll kind of just start to draw pictures, and our mind fills in the gaps, Right? Our mind fill, fills in the gaps. And tonight we're going to talk a lot about this whole week, and we're going to talk a lot about our core beliefs and how our core beliefs predetermine what we perceive. Okay, so I'm just going to teach you a little bit this weekend. Because I can be in a room with people that I'm counseling, and they tell me the exact same story, but they have completely different perceptions. And they're saying the exact same thing, but they have completely different perceptions. One says that's love, the other one says that's rejection, and it's baffling to me. But what we find is perception, which is what I believe filtered through my senses. So perception is what you interpret or what you see through your senses, okay? So it involves how you feel. It is, it is your understanding of a given situation, a person, or an object. That is my perception. Now listen... I perceive things differently than somebody else is going to perceive. If I have a core belief that I am rejected or I struggle with rejection, it doesn't matter what you buy me for my birthday. It's possible that I will perceive rejection when you don't buy me exactly what I asked for. Okay? So it's possible that I'm going to perceive, because I'm perceiving through, filtered through my core beliefs, which often are lies, or I'm filtering through how I feel instead of what is true. Okay? So I, and I hear people say this all the time, well, I perceive, well, I perceive, well, I perceive. And perception, though it, there may, it may be true to how you feel, does not make it truth. Okay, so we're not here to dismiss perception or how we feel, but we are here to learn how to drag our thoughts, you know, in that passage where it says, take captive every thought, every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, that if you read it in the Greek, it doesn't just include taking captive your thoughts, ladies, it also means take captive your emotions. Oh, there's, there's a truth that'll set you free. That means I get to, 
I get to take my rejection. I get to take my despair. I get to take my defeat. I get to take my depression. I get to take my anger. I get to take my bitterness. I get to drag it into line with the emotions of Jesus. Come on. With the emotions of Jesus and take it captive and say, you, depression, are exalting yourself against the joy of the Lord. And I tell you to bow your knee to the truth of Jesus. That's the empowerment we're talking about. We're saying I don't have to ever anymore be drawn astray, allured away, enticed, seduced, and become one with the enemy. How many of you know sometimes your greatest enemy is in your own mind and your own heart? Right? The enemy, all he has to do is give us a little riddle and we fill in all the gaps. We fill in all the gaps because at the core, the foundation, we haven't been rooted and built up in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. Be careful. Be sure that you stay rooted, rooted in Jesus, the truth of who he is, what he says to you. But a lot of us have become rooted in our wound from our childhood. We've become rooted in our rejection. We've become rooted in our offense. We've become rooted in our defense. We've become rooted. Come on now, fill in the the gap. But if you're rooted in anything other than Jesus, you're rooted in a lie. And you have become one with, drawn away from, enticed and seduced by the enemy. By the enemy. I recently watched a TED Talk called The Art of Being Yourself. And the speaker talked about how all of life is basically all about discovering who we really are. Whether we're a believer or not, this seems to be the question in life. Who am I? And what is life all about? What is my purpose? And that's the problem is we battle with multiple perceptions. The perception of man, who people say that we are, or their interpretation of who we are. Our own self-perception which I would call your ego, how you see yourself. And, of course, then there is the perception of God, who he says we are, and his interpretation. All these perceptions are for us to consider. And tomorrow we're going to be taking a look very intensely at the woman being stoned and all the perceptions in that one scene. In that one scene, all the different perspectives that were in that one scene. The Bible says in Colossians 2, 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Listen, here we have these two options here. We have the world's hollow, deceptive philosophy that depends on human tradition. And then what? The basic principle, the elementary foundation, the simplicity of Christ. And it says, see to it, see to it that no one takes you captive. And there it is again. When I think, when I say the word captive, what do you think of? Prison. You think of being taken captive, having your freedom taken away from you, being handcuffed, having, having a ball and chain on your leg. A lot of us have balls and chains. We're going through life like this. Dragging our dead weight of our past, dragging the dead weight of our inferiorities, insecurities, our fears, our pride, our anger, 
and we're, we're taken captive, and that captivity comes because we have based our understanding of who we are on the basic principles of the world rather than on Christ. The voice says it like this. Make sure no predator makes you his prey through some misleading philosophy and empty deception based on traditions that have been fabricated by mere mortals. These are sourced in the elementary principles originating in the world and are not of the liberating king. So don't let their talk capture you. I love that. I love that. Listen, a loss of freedom. We become enslaved to the world's opinion and the perception of man. How many of you want to be perception free? Listen, because we live in a world full of perception, so we, you can forget living in a perception-less world. But you can live in a perception-free world. You, can, you are not going to ever be perception-less, but you can be perception-free when you learn how to understand that there are perceptions in every situation, and I've got to learn to settle on the perception of God. That God's perception is always way different than mine. The Bible says in John 8, 36, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. It says in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And that word know there means to become one with, to recognize. So, so the one that, you know, when Adam knew Eve, and they had a child, okay? So that knowing is to be intimate with. See, the enemy's so dumb, he can't come up with his own tactics, so he steals God's. I say that all the time. But we fall for them. Right? He can't come up with new tricks. He can't come up with new tricks. He's been doing the same thing. It's the same spirits all day long. I was meeting with a 14-year-old um, the other day, and, and she is a severe cutter, and she somehow thinks this is something new under the sun. And so I took her to the prophets of Baal, and I began to, I began to um, read to her about how they slashed themselves and they cut themselves with knives and rocks. Calling on a false god who wasn't showing up, it will frustrate you. It will frustrate you. And it will leave you feeling defeated, alone, abandoned, and the result is people slash themselves. It's the same spirit. There is nothing new under the sun. God is still the answer to today's problems. He has not changed. He was the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is still the answer to today's problems. This is not new. This is not new to our culture. The problem is we try to come up with new solutions, new answers, new tactics, new strategies. The message is the same. The power is the same. The love is the same. The deliverance is the same. The healing is the same. The salvation is the same. And it's the name of Jesus Christ, and it's always been spelled J-E-S-U-S, and it still is named, spelled J-E-S-U-S, and tomorrow it will be spelled J-E-S-U-S. And it has not changed. It's the same thing. And we shall know the truth. Recognized by personal experience. To know there means there's a recognition because I don't just know or have a knowledge of or have information, but I know because I've experienced it. Because it's a reality in my life. And a lot of us have this, have this knowledge-type relationship with God, and we have a knowing because it's what we've been taught. It's been what we've been told. It's what we, what we learned in Sunday school. It's what we hear the pastor preach to us. 
But when somebody approaches you like Jesus did to the disciples and said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And only one man had the answer, and Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed if that's you. But this was revealed to you straight from heaven, a revelation of the Holy Spirit. But you will not have that revelation of the Holy Spirit until you're willing to step back and say, I'm going to put all my intellect aside. I'm going to put all my knowledge of what it looks like to be a believer, and I'm waiting on God to capture my heart. I'm waiting on God to show up for me in a way that's real. Listen, when I'm sitting with a student, when I'm sitting with somebody and they're like, but I just don't believe that, that's okay. Because you know what? The Bible even says that even God is greater than even your heart, so that your heart will not condemn you. Isn't that wonderful? How many of you have been like, this is what I know I'm supposed to be believing? I do believe God, but help me in my unbelief. The man in Mark chapter 9, do you remember him? I love him. He's my favorite. <laughs> Because how many of us spend our life going, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. I do believe, oh, help me in my unbelief, right? That's called humanity. That's called humanity. That's what the psalmist was doing when he looked into his soul and he said, why are you so disquieted, soul? What is your problem? Place your hope, therefore, in God. Hope in him and rejoice in him. Make a choice to operate and ask God to consume you and reveal himself to you. Listen, I can't tell a child, I can't tell a teenager, I can't tell a man, I can't tell a woman, this is who God is, and this, and this is what he wants to be for you. I can say that, but only God can reveal it. Only God can reveal it. So, so it isn't about me giving them really good counsel. It's not about me even really giving them the right scriptures. It's about teaching them how to pursue and let God reveal are you willing to be revealed to? Are you re willing to have God himself open up your eyes? Are you willing to have a straight download by the Holy Spirit into your heart? Spirit to spirit, the deep calling unto the deep. The Bible says that no man calls him Lord Jesus except by the Holy Spirit. Even salvation was by a revelation of a holy God who met you where you were at. But that's just the beginning. God is not done. Every day he is speaking. The sky is proclaiming. Everything's speaking to us, and God wants to show you more. That had nothing to do with anything that I want to speak tonight. But it's good. So here's the thing. So the world has a way of describing us and, and assessing our value and telling us what's important and what we need to do to fit in. And it's like a moving target, is it not? Good Lord have mercy. It's, it's exhausting. So, but, but for funsies, let's talk about the world's ways. I, so I like to talk about the five Ps. So the five Ps are, first of all, performance. The world will value, give us a value or will, will assess our performance. Uh, our value based on performance. So we start itty-bitty teaching our kids that their performance, worldly performance, is important because we put little letters on the top of everything that they do. You got an A. Good job. This teacher approves of you. Oh, you got a B. Oh, you got a C. Oh, you got a D. Oop. And from a very young age, we begin to tell these kids that the world has a value system. And you have just entered into it. Your daily indoctrination of here's what the world finds valuable. 
right? Doesn't matter how hard you tried on that test. How many of you ever studied really, really, really hard on a test? Really hard, worked your tail off, and bombed it? Please raise your hand. <laughs> Please, if you, if you haven't, just raise your hand and make me feel better. Okay, uh, because I definitely have. And how many of you opposite flew into a test by the seat of your pants and got an A? Okay, so the world has a way of assessing that performance, but God has a way of assessing that performance. I, I like to tell people all the time, how do we measure success? It's a very difficult answer to answer, question to answer because churches measure success often by how many people they have in the seats, how many people show up, how much money they're getting in the tithe, are they making their budget? And while those are necessary things and they're good things to look at, I'm not sure it's a biblical way to measure success. A lot of people then will say, oh, we measure success because I go and I do something, and it's successful, it works. And then I will say to them, well, what about Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, who did everything that God told them to do? Go and tell the world. Go and tell the people that if they keep sinning, they're going to be taken into captivity. They did everything that God told them to do. Were they taken into captivity? They were. So how do we measure success? This is free for you guys. Biblically, you measure success with a heart of obedience. That's it. See, I can know in advance I'm going to be successful because I've already predetermined I have a heart to obey. And so it doesn't matter what the outcome, in, uh, outcome is, I already know I'm successful. I've already predetermined my success in any given situation because I have a heart positioned to listen and obey. To do everything that God tells me. I'm not waiting for the outcome. I'm not looking for the numbers. I'm not looking for the results. Success is in obedience. Is in our obedience. But the world will discourage us, right, by saying, oh, I just really felt like God told me to do this. But if God told me to do this, then why didn't more people show up? God didn't say do this and all these people will show up. God said do this. <laughs> and so our success isn't necessarily what we see or how we would measure like the world does, but rather it is in our obedience. Position. All right, so performance is the first one. Your five Ps, performance. Your grades, your sports, your degrees, your successes, your failures. How we're, I, I love how we're chosen for teams as a child, right? On how well you could perform or how well you could play. I mean, y'all, y'all, am I the only one who had a traumatizing childhood in this room? Like, try, yes, thank you. Thank you, honey. We're going to go out for coffee. We're going to bond in our wounds. And so, <laughs> you know, you remember when you were in PE and they would, they would pick? And uh, good Lord, I mean, talk about traumatizing. I do, I do inner healing on children nowadays for that. But, you know, and, but that's, they picked you based on your performance, did they not? This is how valuable you are to play on my team. That's what they're saying. We're teaching our kids when they're this small. This is how the world will measure you. Your position, your career, your popularity, the pecking order in life, where do you fall? How accepted you are? Are you the captain of the quarterback team of the, or the quarterback? Are you the captain of the cheerleaders? Are you the quarterback of the football team? Right? Again, all the way from when we we're children, growing up, that we teach position is so important. Oh, he's the quarterback. She's the captain of the cheerleaders. You know, I mean, like, we have all these, we, we got to give their titles. And then suddenly, there's a value on that person. I went to a, um, I do a lot of um, branding and marketing stuff, and, and I find it fascinating because I just think human behavior is 
comical. Um, <laughs> but I went to this, and they were talking about how, you know, you have your name tags. And um, so I'm always kind of in a conundrum when I go to, like, a Cleburne Chamber or a Burles because I'm on their board. And then I'm like, do I wear, do I wear my Crazy 8 name tag or do I wear my, my chamber board name tag? Or do I wear my name tag for the LL? Or should I just wear all three of them? You know, so I look really important. You know, I'll put my garage door opener right here so people think it's a beeper. You know, they think I'm like a doctor. But now, that was funny. <laughs> they're like, yeah, yeah, that was good. That was pretty good. Uh, but now, now they're saying you shouldn't wear your name tag to marketing events. It's a new thing. It's a new thing. Here's your marketing tip. You should not wear your name tag because people predetermine whether or not they want to talk to you based on your name tag. It is true. I've tried it. Of course, everybody knows who I am in Johnson County, but when I go in Tarrant County, I kind of shock people sometimes. But uh, so I, I've been not, I'm like, well, that just, that just totally freed me up from all the hustle of which name tag do I, I'm not wearing any of them, just throwing them out the window. You know, now I'm like, which card do I give them? Uh, I've got two-sided cards. I fixed that issue. But, uh, <laughs> you know, if you don't like this side, or if I don't, then just flip it over. If this doesn't feel valuable to you, then we could just flip it over, and this side is valuable. So if you don't want to call this Lisa, you could you know, call this Lisa. You know, I've just got my bases covered. This way I'm valuable to everybody. So we're laughing about it, but it's true. We're laughing because it's true, right? And uh, so possessions. Oh, you see that ring on her finger? Mm-mm-mm. Even in high school, you got a flip phone? Oh. Oh, is that your new car? Oh, so it's a truck. Mm. Okay, so possessions. And can't, y'all, we, we do this. I, I'm, I am, I'm, I'm making fun of it, not at it, with it, because, you know, we do that, like, ooh, look at the car they're driving, or look at the purse they're carrying, like, it's weird how we, I don't even know, like, what is it, Louis Vuitton, help me, store manager lady, like, there was somebody in the, at the last, they were like, did you see all that MK stuff, and I'm like, what is MK, what is it, what is it, Michael Kors, who, is that a man, a Mike? Clearly, I don't know. He, he doesn't mean anything to me personally. He's never rescued me from drowning or anything like that. But apparently, he's very valuable to some people because you can have a person just, I'm going gonna, gonna, I'm gonna to make some MK stickers and just stick them on all my purses and see if people start treating me differently because people, they treat you differently based on your possessions, like what you own, do they not? They absolutely do. Can I tell you a real story? Uh, I got a tip one time that they were like, if you drive a nicer car, you'll get higher donations. And I was like, really, that seems weird. Because I would think that people would think, well, that she's not a good steward of her money. No, no, no. I'm sorry, I'm going to say this. Only the churches will think that. The people who really have the money will go, she knows what to do with money. And can I tell you, it's been true. I now drive a Lexus. Come on, guys. There's got to be some acceptance in that. So, (laughs) but it was true. Like, all of a sudden, it was like people who have a lot of money would go, oh, she's the founder of a ministry, and she knows how to manage money. Crazy. But it was their way of assessing how valuable my institution was to write a check based on what I possessed. Personal relationships. We're good at name dropping, aren't we? Oh, you know, I was talking to the mayor the other day. Yeah, yeah, you know, Mayor Shatter. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But no, not Mayor Kane. I was talking to him yesterday, but today I was talking to him. Okay, so we're good at like name name dropping. I really do know those people. <laughs> Anyways, um, so we're really good at name dropping, and personal relationships a lot of times will get you places. We, you know, it's the whole joke. It's not what you know; it's who you know, right? And and we s- we want to say that's not true, but it is true. And that's a worldly thing. It's a worldly tradition, and we get sucked into it. What taken captive into it? deceived by it, drawn away, seduced, allured, fill in the gap, and become one with these realities that we're stuck in. And then, of course, I said the five Ps. So the fifth one is appearance. <laughs> I told you guys I was going to have fun with you tonight. Tomorrow, you guys, tomorrow you guys are going to be like, <laughs> what happened to the laughter? Because you're going to all be in tears. I'm like going to sucker punch you. It's so, so be so fun. Oh, nice. All right. So your appearance uh, is, uh, we're going to be going into some depth on this one um, because I just think it's funny. But let me, let me give you an example of all of how all of this plays out. My son, my oldest son, who's now 20, is he 24, 25? 24. He'll be 25. And how old am I? What's my name? This is why I bring her with me. She's my brain. So Turner my son, who's either 24 or 25, when he was a freshman in high school, that part I know, he played, he played basketball, and he was very good. So at his freshman level, he played on the varsity team, and he was very tall. He was very good. My, my husband was a basketball coach. He actually has a state championship title. How's that for some value in Illinois? And so um, now you're like, ooh, we got to meet him. Um, but so he, he started playing his freshman year on the varsity team. And so but his freshman year, colleges started paying attention, and they scouted him, okay? Now, I don't know if you know much about the scouting process, but they're not allowed to actually talk to the student, okay? So basically, from his freshman year to his senior year, there were college recruiters, college that would come and they would scout him and they would assess his performance. What is his shooting percentage? Uh, what is his free throw percentage? Uh, how is he at uh, blocks? How many blocks can he get? Um, how many, uh, what are those things where they draw something? Uh, charge. How many charges can he draw? And they would, they they assess everything about his performance. They also ask how, how kind of grades does he get? Is he a good student? How are his academics? How does he pay attention? They wanted to know all about his performance. They would ask his coaches. They met with the principals. Uh, they met with some of his teachers. And they would ask all about him. And then they wanted to know um, the position of his parents. Can his parents afford to send him to our institution? And who does he know? You know, does he know anybody? So, of course, you know, he actually ended up going to a college, getting a full-ride scholarship, who had an athletic director that coached with my husband, and so it was who he knew. My point is this, okay? At the end of the four years, all of these colleges showed up, and they put a dollar value in front of him that said, this is how worthy you are to play basketball at our school, and they had never even talked to him. That's our recruiting process that our kids are going through. Is it not like what we do with, with job interviews? What kind of degree do you have? How many, how many years of experience do you have? Uh, do you ask all these kinds of questions? At the end of the interview, if they offer you the job, they place a dollar value on you that says this is how worthy you are to work at our, at our place of employment. 
And so the entire world is assessing our value continuously, so much so that we're all like right now going, oh, God, oh, oh, you know, and, and we're constantly being sucked into the ways of the world of assessing value. This is how valuable you are to me. And it's sad. When I wrote this message, uh, I, I had written this, here's my world's rating. So at the time, I was like, well, and I will tell you still, when I, if I take a look at performance, education-wise, I uh, never finished college, much to my father's dismay, who was a president of a college. So I'm sure you can imagine how disheartening that was for him. Um, so I never finished college. I mean, you know, it'd be one thing not to go, but to start going and not finish. Okay, I'm over it. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> so I, I never. So I'm I'm I have an incomplete education, incomplete um, position at the time. I was not. I was a stay-at-home mom. I had six kids, and um, my possession was my six kids. That was my. That was what I owned. My six kids. I didn't get a paycheck. I didn't get an evaluate. I got lots of evaluations from the children. They were always evaluating the food I was cooking. Uh, but so you know that was my that was my position. I was a mom, stay at home mom. Uh, my personal relationships. I didn't. Now I know the mayors. But <laughs> at the time I was like I don't know anybody famous. Uh, my appearance, you know, I was I was a stay-at-home mom, y'all. So Haynes her way was like <laughs> my favorite thing to wear, you know. I was I was comfortable, hair in a ponytail, didn't wear any makeup. Now I have to wrap it up all nice and pretty because if I sh- tomorrow I should just show up in Haynes her way. I can't get my hair in a ponytail anymore. I could, I can like up here, which would be even which would be even more fun, right? And just be like, I wonder if they'll receive the message the same way they would <laughs> last night. So according to the world, my worth was like, eh. um, and so that was what I, and that was kind of what I constantly had to battle with. Now, it's interesting how the world works and how re- the world's idea of beauty. Let's talk specifically about beauty because that's really what we're concerned about, right? We're all like, um, maybe, maybe I'll tell them my secret. Look at, they're like, mm. do I do it? They're like, mm-hmm, do it. I'll tell you tomorrow. Uh, now, I don't know you well enough. I'm feeling nervous and vulnerable right now. Stop it. Stop staring at me. Everybody stop looking. Everybody look side. Okay, I'm just kidding. Okay, so the world's idea of beauty is, is kind of ridiculous, so let's just have some fun with it. I want you to think about uh, the whole concept of foot binding. And you guys are familiar with foot binding in China? A thousand years in China, they would foot bind. So they, they bind a child's foot, a female foot, uh, when from the age about six or seven is where they start. So you know how little, little Chinese people have those little tiny and they like wedge there? So I don't know if you've ever seen, but uh, what they want to do is the purpose was to actually break the arch of the foot, ultimately leaving a two-inch crevice in the foot which was considered the most desirable and was considered um, a, a sign of prestige and beauty. How, how many of you would love to have your foot broken as a sign? But they all did it because culturally that's what they said was beautiful. Okay? Some cultures you don't have to shave your legs or your armpits. But for whatever reason, America has decided that it's beautiful for us to shave our legs can we just think about it? 
Like, why do we do some of the things we do? I have false eyelashes on. Why? They make me crazy. Because it looks nice, right? Because the world has said big, thick, luscious eyelashes are beautiful, right? And obviously, I've been sucked into that thinking. I'm not afraid to admit my faults. Uh, so <laughs> the circumference of the waist, uh, the waist-to-hip measure the ratio, circum- the waist circumference, uh, if you live in European cultures, they want a 70% of your hips. So they should, so there should be a 70% waist-to-hip ratio. Okay? But if you live in China, you only get 60%, so you're going to have to be a little thinner. But good news, if you want to move to Africa, you get 80%. So, if your hip, waist-to-hip ratio is 80%, move to Africa, and you're beautiful, girl. Mm-mm-mm. Got it. So, see, we've just got to, we just need to pick up and move. And uh, I'm going to go where I can, don't have to wear false eyes. I can have hair on my legs, but not on my eyes. Um, and uh, I can have wider hips uh, and, and, you know, which is interesting now, too. I was noticing on Facebook, I don't know why it came up because I was not Googling this stuff. I know Facebook has an algorithm. I was like, why is this popping up? The padded booty things? Yeah, because the voluptuous booty is in style. But, you know, like 15 years ago, we did everything we could to flatten that baby out because you, you wanted it tucked in, you know. But now it's like, mm, we want to po- poke it out and, you know. Because I guess culture just gets to decide what, it's so, so weird to me, you know. Like, pegged, pegged pants, you know, six or seven years ago was like, she's so old school. And I was like, girl, you are in style. Because the culture just decides for us what's beautiful, what's accepted, what's popular, what's not popular. Body piercing is one of the ancient and widespread types of body art known to have been started by the Romans, who also were very big in nipple piercing. It was a sign of bravery when you had your nipples pierced. So... The Indians in South America, they would wear a thin cane, like in their lower lip. Have you ever seen that? Like they had these lower lips. And then there was those Indian people that would put the rings on their neck to stretch out their neck because a long, thin neck was considered beautiful. It's weird, isn't it? Did you know, like in one one era, the Rubenesque era, anybody know about that, the pre-modern? Anybody study art history? Me neither. Um, I really actually did. <laughs> Ruben S. is the pre-modern area. Overweight was attractive, um, and it was linked to your worth. It meant you could afford the choice foods. Also, pale skin was attractive because it meant you didn't have to work in the fields. But now what do we work for? Nice and thin, and we want to go tan. And so it's totally the opposite. It just depends on what the world, I'm telling you, it's a moving target. And then we don't fit in and we slip into this state of depression of feeling unloved, unapproved, unaccepted, and the reality is we are by the world. Like, let's just face it. (laughs) The world is judging you. Like, people, like, these girls are crying, like, I feel like all my friends are judging me. I'm like, honey, they are. I I mean, I'm not here to lie to you. I'm here to straight shoot with you. I'm I'm just going to shoot it straight, and they are lying to you, but here's the deal. There is an opinion, there is a perception, there is an approval that is not of this world. And the Bible says, while you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. And if you read that in the Hebrew, it says, I approved of you. I put my stamp upon you, I chose you, I knew you before you were in your mother's womb. Before you knew me, I knew you. 
and the world is judging you. They are turning their back on you. They are criticizing you. They are giggling when you turn around. Let's just be honest. Because as mothers, we don't want our girls to feel that way. We're like, oh, honey, no, they don't think that. It's okay. No, just be honest. Yes, they are thinking, welcome to the world. Suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> but that it, we need to just start being honest and saying, hey, this is part of the world that we live in. It's kind of cruel. It's very judgmental. And can we be honest that we're judgmental too? Like we, we do the same thing. We, get, we often judge people based on, I was doing it the other day. She's wearing sandals. You know, I'm like, what? Why are you wearing sandals? And so we often do it. Um, and we value people. We place a value on them based on what we see, based on their performance, based on their possessions, based on their positions, based on their appearance, instead of who they are in Christ. And we're stuck in this conundrum. We're stuck in this conundrum. So can I just do one more fun thing with you? And then I am going to really talk about scripture tomorrow for sure. Can, can I switch up and do this with Brittany? Okay. Come here, Brittany. So Brittany does not know why she's here. But I googled the perfect pose for the perfect picture. So we're going to see which I think this is funny because we all do it. And now, now it's with selfies, right? We have all the filters, right? And the filters basically present this is who you, I want you to think I am. I mean, even, come on, in, even Instagram or everything has, has taught us how to filter our life so that people will see us the way the world tells us is beautiful. All right, I think she's going to get this on video. Come stand right here, sweetheart. So secret number one. Okay, so you're going to turn partially sideways to the camera. So we're going to pretend like, because she really is the camera here. Yes, so she's going to turn partially sideways to the camera, plant one foot in front of the other, and kind of point your toe to the camera, and and make sure you place your uh, weight on the back foot here. And then they give this little tip, make sure your legs, this will make your legs look a little longer. But it also says, I think this is really sweet of Google to give you this tip, make sure you don't lock your knees, because then you could pass out. Okay, it's great that we know this. Okay. So she's turned partially sideways, one foot in front of the other, pointed toe, weight on the back foot, slightly bent. Rotate your shoulders three-quarters to the front. This will make your waist look thinner. Three-quarters, there you go. Okay, how's she doing so far? Weight on the back, you're, you've got, yes, you're good. Okay, pull your head slightly forward to minimize any appearance of your double chin here. We want to get, there you go. Okay. But lower your chin slightly. There you go. (laughs) Okay. She's doing great. Okay. Secret number six. Hold your arm slightly away from your body. This keeps the upper arm flab from flattening out and therefore appearing flabbier, much like your thighs do when you're sitting down on your couch. That's what it says. (laughs) Now, gently suck your stomach in. It says be careful not to suck your stomach in so far that your ribs show thereby causing those later who see the photo to cluck at themselves being amused in a sing-song voice singing, she's sucking it in. That's what it says. I didn't write this. I'm not that brilliant. Okay. Directly look into the lens of the camera. Oh, she's already got it. And it says flirt with the camera. Imagine that camera is your boyfriend. This is why she goes, this is why I don't have a boyfriend. If you want to get away with 
without looking like a Sports Illustrated swimsuit cover girl wannabe, try the look away trick. To do this, you look away from the camera and then turn towards it, breaking into a smile the moment the camera clicks. Your smile will appear fresh and not frozen. This trick takes practice, so you should practice a lot behind closed and locked doors. <laughs> All right, so here we go. One, two, three. <laughs> Just one more. <laughs> All right. This is super important. Girls, this is the best part. When taking a photo, it is important that the photographer does not snap the picture from below. This adds 20 to 50 pounds to the 10 pounds automatically and annoying added by the camera, annoyingly already added by the camera. Find out why cameras add 10 pounds in this article. Oh, she's up. There we go. All right, let's do it one more time. Ready? One, two, three. She did good, didn't she? Give her a round of applause. So we have fun with that. Seems ridiculous, but we all do it, do we not? We do our selfies. We're like, no, 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 no. I had a friend one time that came to visit me. This was uh, about six or seven years ago. And we were taking selfies together. And we were like, no, that's not good. No, that's not good. And I didn't realize at the time they had the feature where your pictures could automatically upload to Facebook. And so all these selfies we were taking were automatic. You remember that feature? They got rid of that, thank God. But, yeah, so we do that. We kind of, and then we put a filter on it. <laughs> Need I say more? We put a filter on it. Well, the Bible takes us all the way back to the very beginning when the Israelites wanted for themselves a king. And it says, uh, they said to Samuel, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. See, it was never God's desire that the Israelites would come under a king, because he was their king. It was his desire that they would be led through the voice of, holy inspiration of the voice of the Holy Spirit through the prophets. But they began to see and look at the other nations and the traditions and the principles of the other governments, and they were drawn astray. They were drawn away from the kingship of an almighty God and wanted a king, an earthly king. And then even then, the king that they picked was a man who was of great stature, who looked the part, who was strong and handsome, and later we know that when God said, okay, if they're going to have a king, I'll pick the king. And he picked one that was found hiding in the baggage. He was the, most, the least likely, the dismissed one, because he didn't look the part. He said, I'll give you a king, but he's not going to look like what you think he's going to look like. And see, God always picks differently than the world does. When the prophet came and said, I'm looking for the next king, David wasn't even a part of the lineup. He wasn't even considered he was, he was an illegitimate son who was out in the field, yet that is the one that God anointed. But the point is, is the world doesn't pick. The world's ways of valuing, the world's measure is different from God's measure. The world's perception is different from God's. And we are being drawn away just like the Israelites were being drawn away. The Bible says in James 4.4, you adulterous people. Don't you know that a friendship with the world is a hatred towards God? 
Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. I love, I think it's in Jeremiah where it says that these people have turned their backs on me, turned their backs on the living water, and they have drawn for themselves, they have dug for themselves a cistern that holds no water. And and what I love is the visual of that to say, here is the living water. But if I want to if I want to work for my own water, if I want water of this world, I can't look at God. I actually end up turning my back. They have turned their backs on me and have dug for themselves a cistern that holds no water. See, there is no middle ground. When Elijah showed up at, at the at the mountaintop, he said, "How long will you waver between two opinions? If God is your God, then serve him." But if it's Baal, then serve him. But don't waver back and forth. That man is double-minded. He's unstable in all of his ways, and he should not think that he will receive anything from God. That's what the Bible tells us in James chapter 1. If you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding faults. But when you ask, you must believe, because if you ask and you don't believe, you become like a wave tossed back and forth by the winds of the sea. That man is unstable in all of his ways. He's a double-minded man, and he should not think he will get anything from God. But that passage starts by saying, if you lack wisdom, if you need to know, if you're looking for truth, ask God, and it will be given to you generously, without fault. You're not going to get that in the world. You're not going to get that in the world. But I'm here to tell you there are two choices. There are two price tags. There's a faulty price tag and there's a real price tag. And the world is alluring us into the, into the counterfeit, into the fake, saying this is what it looks like to be beautiful. You've got to put a filter on it, baby. And it's a lie straight from the pit of hell. And we've got to be eyes wide open, paying attention for where we're being drawn into the ways of the world, for where we're being drawn and becoming a friend of the world. And remember, there is no middle ground. See, a lot of us think we can do hokey pokey with the kingdom. You can try. You can try, but it's not going to work. I tried, but it's not going to work. There's no middle ground. Jesus told the rich young ruler, if you want to inherit the kingdom, sell all that you've got. When Elijah called Elisha, he said, burn everything that you have. If you want to follow your family, then follow your family. But if you want to follow me, you've got to cut everything off and follow me. There is no middle ground. The Bible tells us that if you are lukewarm, somewhere in the middle, you'll be spit out of the mouth of God. Because in the middle, can I teach you for a minute what that passage is talking about? Because it's fascinating. Okay. Laodicea, the church of Laodicea in Revelations. You are a church that is lukewarm, and therefore you'll be spit out of your mouth. Aeropolis, Colossae were the two lands that were around it. One had hot springs, the other had cold springs. Hot springs is useful. It was, it was medicinal. People would come from all over to soak in it for healing and, they, and for hot water. They didn't have furnaces like we have. 
The other was cold springs, and they would come for a fresh drink of water. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have ice cubes. So they would travel from all over for a fresh drink of water. But in the middle was Colossae that had no water source of its own. So they built underground aqueducts underground aqueducts where they pulled from the hot springs, pulled from the cold springs, and there in the middle, all it became Laodicea, and in the middle, the hot and the cold came together, and there were several problems with the hot and the cold, okay? The hot and the cold coming together made lukewarm, but also it was very stagnant. There was no movement, so it got filled with the, covered with this film. Okay, so first of all, people would come, and they wouldn't know there was any water there. Why? Because it was hidden. It was underground, Okay, listen to me. Listen to me. They borrowed water. They didn't have any water of their own. They borrowed water. It was hidden. It was underground. It was stagnant, and it was lukewarm. And people would travel, and when they discovered that there was water in Laodicea, and they would go to take a drink of it, they would spit it out of their mouth because it was not palatable. And if we are borrowing faith from other people who are useful to the kingdom, riding on, pulling from their heat, pulling from their cool, in the middle we will have a stagnant, hidden, no good, useless faith. The Bible tells us in James chapter 2 that your faith without a work is dead. It's useless. There's no purpose to it. But the point is, is there's no middle ground here. You're either hot or you're cold. You're either useful or you're not. You're either for God or you're not. You're either a friend of God or you're a friend of the world. You're either drinking of the living water or you're digging your own water. There's no middle ground. How long will you waver between two opinions, the opinion of the world and the opinion of God? My own opinion and the opinion of God. The opinion of my husband. Come on. And the opinion of God. The opinion of my best friend and the opinion of God. Can I say it? The opinion of your pastor and the opinion of God. How long will you waver between two opinions? If God is your God, serve him. Serve him. And be set free from the perceptions of the world. You will never live perceptionless, but you will find freedom from perceptions. Father, I just come before you, and I thank you, Lord, for just the fun that we were able to have here. But, God, the truth is it's not really funny. It's not funny what the enemy's doing. It's destructive, and it's evil. And tonight, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open up our eyes to the places in our life that we're being held captive, enslaved to the world's way of thinking, I call you a restorer, a deliverer, that you have released all of the captives from the prison of this world. So I thank you, Father, that even right now, that you're releasing heavenly keys that will unlock places where we are held captive to the world's way of thinking. I thank you, Father, that even though we may not have necessarily been seeking you out, you've been seeking us out. And God, you're never satisfied until you have all of us. You are 100% God. You gave us 100% on the cross, God, and you continue to pursue us until we, have, we are surrendered 100%. So God, you do it. Open up our eyes, Lord, to where we have been taken captive to the ways of the world. 
to the perceptions of the world, to the performance of the world, to the measurement of the world, to the price tag of the world. And may we learn all this weekend, God, your price tag, the real value, the real thing. No more filters. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to my podcast, Enforcing Purpose with Lisa Schwartz. For more information or to keep up on current events and products, please go to my website at www.lisa-schwartz.com. 